Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off. We're off. Here we are. Here we are. Another uh, adventure through um, the seat of my pants. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, dear. Um, hello. Uh, you're listening to another fan club, five-star family fun-size fan club. My name is Nick, and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to... Fan club. Five-star family fun-size fan club. And uh, the first rule of fan club is... Tell your friends. Tell your friends about fan club. And the second rule of fan club is... Please, for the love of God, tell your <laughs> friends. Uh, there has been some people telling their friends this week. There has been good people, good solid people. people, people that have had, like, a moment uh, of their own lives where they're not... They're not selfishly thinking of COVID and and they're doing what they should have been doing all year, which is telling people about fan club. A lot of these people have probably furloughed and things from their work. So they've probably had more time on their hands to do things. They've got nothing you else to do. Opportunity in March, you would have gone, oh, this is ideal. I've yeah. now got, as long as this uh, pandemic lasts, to tell the world about fan club. Door-to-door <laughs> sales. It's door-to-door sales. They should be canvassing for us. Oh. Take two hours off a week to watch uh, to listen to the show, uh, or maybe do it just with your headphones in and do it online. Then while you're listening, you while know, you know, and socially distanced, you know, you can maybe like um, get a wet wipe, clean off your earbud, hand it over to your mate, let them listen, and they go, "Do you know what? It's not that bad. It's not that bad." Um, and then, uh, yeah, but people people don't think outside the box a lot of the time. Yeah, and if that's, anything, that's good. That's good in these present times to to stop the spread of COVID. So you know, if you haven't been doing that, well, then you know the fact we're in lockdown again is probably your fault. Part of the problem. You're part of the problem, guys. Part of the problem. Um, so I don't want to how, negatively, but don't want to. I hate it. I hate it when Nat. You know me. Yeah. You know I'm a nice, friendly guy, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing that winds me up the absolute most is having to start each of our fucking episodes with a telling off. Exactly. But, my God, I don't know what other podcasts... If anyone that does another podcast is listening to this, please write in and tell me your experience. But I am feeling continuously let down by our core listenership and fan base. And if you can give us any advice as to how to keep your listeners in check, then please write in, because I am at the end of my tether. I have had it up to here, and I'm sat down now, so so you can imagine when I'm stood up, it'd be much higher. And the, anyway. the, email, the email is fanclub, one word, at foobarradio.com. That's <laughs> fanclub, one word. Don't put one word in. Fan club, just right, fan club, at the at sign, foobarradio.com. The at signal. The at, yes. Maybe that's what we should do. We should get, like, the bat signal, and it's just a big at. Yeah. We, we shine it into the sky, and people will know from miles around that we are desperate for listeners. Anyway, so, <laughs> um, so uh, we've had some good news, haven't we? We're, we're, we're in the charts in a couple of places, aren't oh, we? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Can you put it on there? I can't remember where it was. Was it, was it Ireland? 
I think we're in the charts in Ireland. And somewhere else. Ireland, yes. And, and France. Estonia. Estonia. It was Estonia and Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 70, number 78 in Malta today. Um, so that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Not bad at all. Ireland, Estonia, they strike me as uh, countries I associate with the Eurovision Song Contest. So perhaps we've got that sort of multi across Europe. We are people are fans of us, but are they telling their friends? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, that's what that's what it is. I mean, ever since I feel like ever since um, we tried and have we succeeded in officially properly breaking from the EU? I think we have, haven't we? I think uh, I, I don't know if we got all the way through it before lockdown, but like I feel like since then. You know, our European fans have actually been a lot more bloody proactive. They don't want to see us go either. Well, no, I mean, I'm sure that we came up as part of the kind of negotiations and said, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 fine, all right, we won't do any more trade with you, mm -hmm. but please, for the love of God, let's promote, <laughs> let's promote, let's tell our, let's tell our amis about fan club. And yeah. so, yeah, God bless them. Estonia have kept their end of the... Brexit starts 31st of January 2020, 11pm. Yeah, so we're already... I mean, that was... I mean, that seems like a delayed... I can't mm. believe I've only just found that out. <laughs> and at, the point, at the point we leave Brexit, guys, just a reminder that you have uh, one hour, 60 minutes to complete your tax return at that point. So you with it. Yeah, and what better way to fill in your tax return than to buy by slinging on a fan club marathon in the background? <laughs> but the great thing about this show is it's easy to just sort of like you know uh, uh, zone it out. You know, it's just background noise at best. Um, and speaking of background noise, we've got some great guests coming up later. So uh, feel free to whack them on in the background and uh, get on with the rest of your day. I don't know, do a jigsaw, fill in a tax return, what's your plans? Um, so what have you been... What are you going to say there, Nat? You're going to say something? No, I was going to say, I was going to say, I've had a bit of good news today. I did a, a COVID swab test oh, over yeah. the weekend. And have you got it? No, I've got it. Oh. Well, that is good news. Well, it depends on what I you're aiming for, I suppose. Depends on what you're aiming for. Um, if you if you were hoping to have it, then that'd be awful news. But seeing as uh, you were hoping not to have it, then that sounds like it's good news for you. Suppose I haven't got any antibodies or won't have. I guess that's the the downside. Um, I've got a couple of antis, but um, but uh, uh, they have bodies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, ah, it's good to be back on top form. So. <laughs> Um, uh, top, top flight comedy as well. Oh my god, comedy! I barely knew him. So what is um, what? How are you? I'm all right. I'm COVID free. I uh, I feel a bit like basically I've watched a lot of films this week, and when I when I put out my list, when I've watched this many films, I think I'm having a breakdown. Oh, really? it's like, oh god, that's tons. That's crazy. Really. Um, and it makes me think, I quite like it when I've seen about five because it makes me feel I'm quite productive and I'm getting on with things. And, you know, some evenings I go, yeah, sling a film on. Why not? Mm. Take a break. And when I've seen this many, I go, uh, what, what's happened? What, 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 what's going on in your brain? 
So how many have you seen this week? How many? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Fuck. I mean... Two, two of them are like TV movies. I didn't, that's not just a fuck. That is a proper Greg Wallace. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> fuck. Um, wow, 12. I mean, I used to aim to see a film a day. I've seen a few films this week, but I can't really remember what I've seen. I remember two, so I can at least talk about those. But, um, but 12 would be a good week for me, I think. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say that that's, that's bad. I'd say that that's... Um, I'd say that that's a good thing. Um, but for me, especially as kind of like, you know, what, are you, what else are you doing? Well, exactly. I actually do have some work to do, which I haven't been doing, which might be also why I've watched 12 films. Um, yeah. I've got, I've got, I've actually been very busy with a lot of work. Um, uh, and I think it's a bit much, really. I could I do with I could do with um, I could do with someone just telling me, Nick, just t- stop, just stop what you're doing, don't do anything for two weeks, because even when I'm not doing anything, I'm thinking I should be working. Yeah. I just think, um, yeah. Oh, but good for you. Um, I think um, I've, I've got that issue though, where I I think my work ethic has gone to gone to pot this year. Because I feel like I shouldn't, almost that this feels like downtime, but it shouldn't. I feel like I should be working much more. I think the time for it feeling like downtime has long gone. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think there was, like, the novelty part of it is gone, and now it's just like, we should really have sorted out how to, how to work under these circumstances. And there's a part of me that has, and there's a part of me that's kind of like... I don't know. I don't know. Um, what am I saying? I'm saying that uh, I, was, I was having a conversation with someone this week. I can't remember who it was. Or maybe I was watching a uh, YouTube thing. But it's, it was all about sort of like adapting and coping and, you know, reassessing what it is that you want to do with your life. You know, being part of a rat race and then... Uh, oh, it was George Lucas. Oh, yeah. George Lucas does this, did this really good talk from ages ago. And he was just talking about um, kind of like his life. Um, and it was actually really interesting. He was talking about the fact that you have two things in life. You have um, pleasure and joy. And pleasure is short-lived. But joy is... Uh, everlasting, everlasting and, and pleasure um, it's not just short lived but it's kind of like very selfish and it's kind of like the more um, you try to replicate it the more you have to go down those depths so the more you eat and the more you fuck and the more you do all this other stuff that's pleasure although George Lucas didn't say either of those things he said he used shopping as an example but he was like saying, you will never, ever be able to replicate that first car that you bought. You know, it doesn't matter how rich you become and how many cars you buy, you'll never be able to replicate the joy or the pleasure of owning your first car. 
And so then what you actually have to concentrate on is joy, which is less intense. And I don't think he even used the word joy. It was another word. I was going to say contentment or something. Joy feels con- like too good. Joy feels was- like great. It wasn't contentment. It wasn't contentment. And it wasn't happiness. It was, but it was the difference between pleasure and, you know, happiness. And he was like saying that, you know, happiness or joy. I'm just going to sit with joy, but you can look up the clip. It's George Lucas doing a speech. And it wasn't about Star Wars, you know. It was about, like, how he started and what he was interested in. And it was about how um, when he started out, he wanted to be... Uh, um, an artist, and his dad said that you're not. There's not going to be any artists in our house. And he had a best friend that had to go and take a test to get into university. So, uh, and he didn't want to go by himself. So he took George Lucas with him. And George Lucas was like, "Well, I'm not really intending on going to university, so I'll just go along with you and I'll take the test." He took the test and he passed. And um, he looked at all of the things that, that you could do at the university, and one of the things was a photography course. And he was just like, well, I could go to this, um, I could go to this university and I could do like a, a photography course. And so when he got there, it wasn't a photography course, it was a cinematography course. And it wasn't a cinematography course, it was a how to, how to make films course. And he was never interested in making films. And then when he, um, oh, he was in a car crash. So he originally wanted to make cars and be a car driver you know a, a race car driver but he got in a car crash so that kind of like took his career in another way so he became like more interested in art and then you know by like these sort of accidents he ended up kind of like doing a film making course and then that became his passion he was just like oh i love that and then through that he managed to take on all of his other interests like um history and anthropology and art and he used to he, he was able to put it all into one area uh, and then he became a filmmaker. And then through being a filmmaker, which is something that he said that he wasn't particularly interested in when he was a kid, like he went to see like a couple of B-movies, you know, a month with his friends and stuff, but he wasn't sort of like an avid film-goer. Like someone like Martin Scorsese, he was obsessed with films. Um, and uh, so he he kind of like got into films from sort of like a technical point of view, which you can kind of tell... And then he's become, like, one of the most instrumental filmmakers that's ever lived. Not necessarily through the films that he made, because in terms of a director, he made THX, American Graffiti, Star Wars, and then he became a producer, and then he didn't really direct anything until the prequels, which loads of people, you know... If you were born around that time, you love them, and if you grew up with the original trilogy, then you kind of have a, a difficult relationship with them. Um... But in terms of someone that's contributed to cinema, in terms of, like, the technological developments he's made, in terms of camera and special effects, you know, he's, like, responsible for uh, Pixar and uh, ILM. uh, Was it Skywalker Sound as well? Skywalker Sound, uh, the way THX uh, cinema systems, the way that we see or the way that we saw films in the cinema... Well, like all of those developments on how technology uh, came about. He, he worked with James Cameron on 3D, and you know, he's like a pioneer in cinema. Maybe not in the films that he made, but in terms of the technological side of it. So coming from a kid that wanted to build cars, he's had like this career, and he was like saying it's kind of about kind of like 
um, uh, you, you, you might have an idea of what you want, but when you're kind of denied that thing, then you kind of like have to work out another thing that it is that you're going to do. And I thought that that was really interesting in terms of COVID, where so many people have kind of like had their, their careers uh, either stopped or um, re-diverted. And uh, I think that it's important for people to sort of um, go with the flow. So I've focused less on, <laughs> I mean less on, but I've focused less on obviously being a live performer as a comedian and more on kind of like writing stuff and developing stuff um, and trying to get stuff made that way and acting, you know. And, um, uh, and, and that's kind of like, I guess, what I've... When I look back at what I wanted to do when I was a kid, that's sort of the direction I always wanted to go in. Um, and... Um, and I've worked hard to get to where I am, but, you know, um, I'm, I also feel like I'm very uh, lucky and privileged to be there. And um, I think that if you can apply... If you can apply those ideas to your own lives uh, and just kind of um, roll roll with a lot of the punches, then, um, then it's not so bleak. You can kind of, like, try and work out what the next thing, what the next part of your life is. I don't know, it was a really inspiring um, and a very down-to-earth sort of uh, uh, speech that he made. Um, and I really like George Lucas. I think that he's had a lot of shit. And then also, in the last week, his plans for the sequel trilogy were released, which were all about uh, the Wells... Uh, the, the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Oh. If you're listening to the show, you know what the sequel trilogy is, surely. Um, but uh, there's a book that's just been released about uh, from 2000, uh, from 1999 to 2005, the Star Wars archives going over the prequels. And within there, there's like a chapter or there's like a paragraph that's about what George Lucas's plans for the sequel trilogy were that he sold to Disney that they ended up throwing out and doing something else with. Um, and when you find out what George Lucas actually had planned, it's 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 sort of crazy, and you kind of like go, I I really didn't like the sequels, but I don't think I'd have liked George Lucas's sequels much more either. There are these things called so the midi chlorians. Uh-huh. You have a midi chlorian count in your in your blood or in your body that tells you how at one you are with the force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just and came that, up negative for that though. I did the swab test, and I've got zero midi chlorians. Well, it stings when you stick it up your nose, doesn't it? And you can't uh, help but sneeze, and it gags when you do it down your throat. Mm. But uh, a Jedi fears not these things. Yeah, I guess that's the difference. That's the difference. But like, depending on what your midi chlorian count depends on how much you can control the force. And the force is basically it's micro uh, uh, microbes that are actually a species called the wills. <laughs> And they they drive around uh, they drive around on atoms. They drive around on atoms like uh, like the dragsters on American graffiti, and um, um, and uh, basically the secret trilogy was going to be about uh, a microbiotic uh, universe, 
Um, and Darth Maul was going to be back and Darth Maul's sister was going to be back. And they were going to be like the main gangsters. And now that the Emperor has gone, it's all about kind of like the gangster underworld and Luke Skywalker trying to uh, put together the Jedis again. So there's, there's one part of it where you go, yeah, I kind of get that. It's Luke Skywalker putting together uh, the Jedis and Princess Leia is the galactic uh, leader and she's the chosen one. And it's kind of... There were some interesting ideas, but it wasn't going to be kind of like a real straight story. And it was literally going to be... He wasn't just ending the Skywalker saga. He was sort of like ending what Star Wars was. He was kind of like going, and this is the end of my Star Wars story. And that is the end of that. And if George Lucas had done it, I think he would have put a definite full stop at the end of those nine films. And you wouldn't have stuff like The Mandalorian... And you wouldn't have kind of like... And I haven't seen The Mandalorian, but I'm just saying that... Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the, the sequel trilogy... The prequel trilogy pretty much ended my Star Wars fandom. And then with um, the sequel trilogy starting with that first one, it kind, of, it kind of like gave me a new hope. And then with The Last Jedi, it killed it again. And I was kind of like, no, I, I, I'm kind of... I, I'm the original trilogy and that's it. So I don't know. I don't, I don't really know. But one thing that I was thinking, um, even this morning, <coughs> was that um, you have these archetypes of films or you have these archetypes of stories. And Star Wars is like a, a huge archetype where it's kind of like you have um, a prince and a princess and an old wizard and a dark knight, uh, not Batman, and uh, a castle... And it's about uh, good versus evil. And it's a quest film where, where there's a young guy that has to uh, go on a quest with a rogue and a wizard. And they have to go and save a princess uh, from, a, from an evil lord from a castle, right? And that's what Star Wars is, right? It's a fairy tale. And you think, yeah, that's right. It was an archetype. And the fact that George Lucas says that he always planned these nine films... I think that he knew he had like a big I think he had a big story and I think while he was writing this huge story he had to really nail what that first what that story was that he wanted to tell. I don't even think it was a first story. I think I don't even think he thought there'll be sequels. Mm. I think he just literally thought I've got one film, I'm going to make one film. What is that film? And he had this huge sprawling idea with like Wookiees and uh, Yodas and uh, you know the, the the Wills and the Sith and the Jedi and Luke Scar uh, Star Killer and all of this stuff. So he had all of these huge ideas that were like rambling and all over the place, and he had to go right. What am I going to do? So he took a fairy tale and he went, "I'm going to tell it through this." Uh, this this format, right? And he did that, and it was a big success. And then he went, right, so I'm going to do some more of them. And what George Lucas was really good at was the fact is that that Star Wars film has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's a self-contained film. And what's really interesting about that original trilogy is that, yes, it's a standalone film, but effortlessly he expanded it to, he expanded it to be Empire Strikes Back which Empire Strikes Back is basically half a story mm -hmm. 
um, it's not even a middle part of a story. It's almost like it's a new story, right? But it isn't based on an archetype like the wizard and the farm boy that go off on an adventure. It's taking those characters and it's expanding those characters to what happens after Happily Ever After, which is genius, right, with Empire Strikes Back. And then when you get to Return of the Jedi, he concludes that story. And then when he goes back to do uh, the prequels... Again, he's kind of like taking these things like oh, there's a virgin birth and he's taking all these sort of like biblical and mythical kind of like concepts and he's putting them all together and he's creating something that's new and he's taking stuff, you know, he's talking about senates and politics and the rise of fascism and this is where it starts, this is the end of democracy um, and he's doing something and, you know, you can like or hate the prequels but he's doing something completely different with them and, um, and he's doing something that's that's very complicated where he's trying to tell through a space adventure, like the history of, uh, uh, of human politics. Right. And he's doing that as a prequel to this very basic, a boy and a farm boy and a wizard go off on a, on an adventure. Right. And so he hasn't really repeated himself in those six films. So then when you get to like uh, the, um, the seventh film, where they recreate the uh, the plot of the original Star Wars, where it's now it's a farm girl that goes on an adventure with a wizard or an old guy, and they go to you know Star Killer. It's the same film, right? Like beat for beat, and you, you kind of like go, well, that's the first time that the series has really ever repeated itself. And um, this isn't like me bashing the sequels. This is me just basically saying that um, what was interesting about that series was that it did start off with that archetype, and I don't believe he ever planned nine films. And I don't think it's impossible to get nine films out of it, but I also think that um, that it was... A, a, um, it's interesting that without his guidance that the first thing they did was they reverted back to this thing, where in actual fact there were hundreds of stories they could have told of those characters. And not necessarily Luke and Leia and Han, but, like, in terms of that universe, there were hundreds of stories they could have told, and it was a bit odd that they kind of, like, reverted back to, let's just remake the first one. I thought it was interesting you were talking about the, um, the, the, the sequels, the villains are meant to be Darth Maul and it was going to be gangsters and things, because that's basically where the solo film was going wasn't it that was setting all that up so it's like they've taken that element of it and had like rather than having like the empire it's basically what they called the something dawn weren't they the and they were like they were gangsters essentially they were like villains and yeah and i think all that kind of stuff again and i think that that solo film got a lot of bashing but in actual fact it took a lot of the ideas that basically george lucas had presented to them and used them there um I don't think that... I mean, I'm not really talking about the Star Wars films per se, but what I am saying is that when you look at something like Speed and Speed 2, yeah, they've done... Oh, Speed is Die Hard. Mm-hmm. So Die Hard, it's not, actually. I watch Speed again. It is a bit more sophisticated than Die Hard, but when you look at Speed, you've got... When you look at Die Hard, you've got Die Hard, which invented a new kind of, like, subgenre within action. It kind of, like, gave it this fresh, self-contained spin. Like, Dirty Harry was an action film, but it was about a cop that was on a mission. 
uh, and then Dirty Harry 2 was about the same cop on another mission. And it wasn't sort of cookie-cutter, it wasn't formatted. It was kind of like this sprawling thing where it's just like, well, what are we going to do with Dirty Harry this week? When in actual fact, what Die Hard did was it went, this is how you do an action film. You get a guy, you put him in a situation, and then... Uh, you, you know, a, con a contained scenario, and and you put him up against a bunch of terrorists, and he's got to save someone. And then if you do that every single time, you will have a film. And so they did that. You know, they did that with Die Hard, Die Hard Two, Sudden Impact, Under Siege. Uh, there were like others. <laughs> uh, the Anna Nicole movie, Skyscraper. Uh, the Dwayne the Rock Johnson movie, Skyscraper. Um, uh, Die, uh, it's interesting with Die Hard. Die Hard was basically it was a mixture between an action movie, a cop movie, and a disaster movie. And so you take it's the Towering Inferno meets Lethal Weapon, right? Mm. And when you get Die Hard Two, it's kind of like yeah, right. Well, we've done the Towering Inferno, so we'll do Airport now. So now it's about planes that are stuck in the sky, you know. And then we've done that. So with the third one, what are we going to do? Well, we'll set it in a city, which is kind of being blown up, like Earthquake, right? So they've taken all these disaster movie conventions and they've kind of put a diehard film in them. Um, I guess he's uh, also meant to be like, he's like the normal man against the world, isn't he? He's like outnumbered and he's a regular Joe. Well, you're, completely, you're completely meant to relate to him in a way that you don't relate to Steven Seagal, where he's... That's the thing that they never really got right in any of the sequels. John, or any of the sort of, like, spin-offs, is kind of like uh, John McClane is an everyday cop. He's just a regular cop that's put in ex extraordinary circumstances, whereas in all the others, you've got... Uh, if Stephen Seagal was just a chef that knew how to use a knife, then you go, great. But the fact is, he's ex-Navy SEALs who's slamming it as a chef, and it's kind of like you go, ah, oh, right, well, he's... I wouldn't. I'd, I'd be dead then. I'd be that guy that gets killed in the first five minutes. John McLean, you can kind of imagine that. Yeah, I'd do that. There's a great bit in Under Siege where the ending is um, Steven Seagal versus Tommy Lee Jones, and they have a knife fight. And it's obviously that Steven Seagal has obviously demanded that he can't really get hurt by Tommy Lee Jones. So it becomes the most sort of one-sided fight where it doesn't work. There's no drama in it. It's basically Steven Seagal cutting and stabbing Tommy Lee Jones to bits, where he's just taking all these kind of cuts and stabs. And there's no, there's not a sense that he's ever going to win this fight. And it just, there's no drama in it. It's silly. It's just like he's beating up Tommy Lee Jones. Which, um, which is unfair. It is unfair. <laughs> but, um, but, but the thing is that, you know, like Die Hard invented a new archetype, right? In terms of storytelling. And then they replayed that over and over and over again. Right, and um, even with the, with the first sequel, they changed things up with Die Hard with a Vengeance, but with Speed and Speed Two, they did the same film. Under Siege, Under Siege Two, they did the same film. But they managed to get so many Star Wars films out of the ultimate archetype, which is this fairy tale, and they used that as their starting point, and then they filled out this world around it. So basically, it's weird as a franchise because you have these like sprawling three films. If you do them in chronological order. You've got episode one, episode two, episode three, which are these sprawling three films that are basically trying to be this Shakespearean tragedy. Then you get this farm boy fairy tale episode, and then you get like this dark kind of father son Shakespearean tragedy again. 
And then you get the same sort of like farm boy episode, only this time it's like gender reversed. And then you get like this film that really didn't know what to do with anything and it goes, do you know what, we're going to start from scratch. And then you get this film which is kind of like, we've got to end it. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> So I don't know. I don't know really what I'm, I don't really know the exact point I'm trying to make. I just I'm not. Tr- I, I think you're right. I think that's how Star Wars began. I think it's like it's a it's this big idea that they've uh, they sort of boiled down to this one story. And then everything else is almost it becomes difficult to try and fit these other films around it because you've kind of completed it. Yeah, because you're kind of like what you're trying to do is you're trying to like put more gravitas within that little simple story that you made. It's kind of like there was no way that Darth Vader was meant to be Luke Skywalker's dad, but they've gone, how do we expand this and make this interesting? And it really works in Empire Strikes Back. And it really, like, absolutely, the end of Return of the Jedi is is fantastic. And I think if they'd have planned, I know that I know that he spent ages on him, but I think if he'd have pro- probably planned episode one a little bit better... You would have had a really satisfying trilogy if he'd have got someone else to write the dialogue and maybe direct it, and he'd have planned that prequel trilogy a little bit better. You'd have had an even, you know. I mean, I, I can't watch Phantom Menace, but not because I hate it, just because it's so boring, you know. And you go, if you'd have sort of like planned that a little bit better, it would have all flowed together a lot more. Um, and I also think that you could have brought in a lot of those elements and really done a satisfying ending with the sequel trilogy. I think the thing that's most frustrating about the sequel trilogy was that they overcomplicated it. They tried to change, they tried to change the vehicle and they tried to change, change tack too late in the game where you basically just go, just finish this story and then make these films that you want to make. But they were too eager to make these new films that it was kind of like a splodge. And then by the time they realised that they needed the original trilogy to be part of the sequel trilogy, it was too late. All they had left was the Emperor. And they stuck him on a pole. <laughs> they stuck him on a robot arm for, him for ten minutes in a film. And you go, that's mental. Why, why have you done that? Anyway, we've got to play a song because I've talked for half an hour about George Lucas. But um, let's talk about your 12 films coming up next. Uh, Play the song. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. And we're back, and we're back. We're back. We're back in Camp Covid. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, like, saying anything new, but what it just occurred to me was that um, in terms of storytelling, you have these archetypes, and what's interesting about Star Wars was it was the ultimate archetype, and yet it didn't really reuse that archetype for five films and i think it was possible to probably not reuse it at all i think now there's a bit hindsight is 2020 isn't there i think there is now a way you could look at it all as a whole and go this is how you should have done it well i think that i think when you talk about remakes you know oh you can remake anything i think that you could absolutely remake the prequels and you could take that story and you could you could you know tell it in a like really coherent way. I never thought that force ghosts were some I thought if you were really good at if you were a really good Jedi and you died, then you'd come back as a force ghost. That's just what happens. 
because you're at one with the force. I didn't think it was something that Qui-Gon Jinn went away and thought about, and then he invented it. Do you know what I mean? I thought it was just a yeah. thing. Because by the time you're with that, the, that, those nine film stories, the Jedis are thousands and thousands of years old. So the fact that it's a new invention within that series of films is kind of stupid. Yeah. Yes, and and George Lucas should have known that. It was like he was doing fan service and he didn't know how to do it, so he just fit bits in and he go, oh, that's law now, but that doesn't really... And this is coming from someone that isn't a Star Wars fan. Anyway, um, I'll tell you this, just before, just before you tell me about what you watched, I watched this film last night, I watched this Powell and Pressburger film last night. Which one? A Canterbury Tale. Love it. Absolutely love it. It's great, right? Absolutely. But bonkers, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what the glue man and all that. It's called it's called a Canterbury Tale, and it's and I thought it's going to be talking of archetypes. It's going to be this timeless story uh, where it's taking like Chaucer and it's updating it for like World War Two, and um, but what what, it's just also quite odd. It's kind of like trying to be a Chaucer, a Chaucer tale where it's the adventure, it's like an episodic adventure of these uh, three people on their way to Canterbury, right? Mm. That's what it is, right? But uh, because it wasn't a series of films called The Canterbury Tales and it's just a one-off film, it's, it's mental. It's, this, it's a film where an American GI gets oh, off at the... Oh, boy, I got off a stop early. He gets off on the wrong stop. Uh, and he's he's met by Charles is it Charles Hawtrey from yes. uh, Carry On, mm-hmm. uh, who you don't know it's him until later on when he see him in daylight. Uh, there's some amazing acting in it. There's some ma- amazing comedy kind of like bits in it where Charles Hawtrey is trying to eat something, and they're all having this rat attack kind of screwball dialogue, and he keeps trying to put it in his mouth, and he keeps like getting uh, having to sort of like, interject, and so he doesn't get to eat for like eight eight bites. Um, and uh, but like they get off this train right at the beginning, and they're in the dark trying to get to the town hall in this place just outside of the Canterbury. And then a man comes along, uh, a, 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 a mysterious figure in the night comes along and puts something sticky in this woman's hair. And then the rest of the film is trying to work out who this man that put sticky stuff in her hair is. And it's like what? And then they wrap that up after about an hour, and then they spend half an hour in Canterbury having kind of like these religious moments and it's kind of like you go it's it's so like every single Powell and Pressburger film is wonderful uh and I've never seen that one before I've got a box set and I've always kind of like I'm not sure if I'm up for a Canterbury tale and I didn't know anything about it but when it started I had to pause it and wikipedia and go is this what the film is about it's about a man that puts something sticky in this woman's hair and then it becomes like this sort of like it's not a murder mystery it's uh kind of like and also, I think the idea is, which isn't, which doesn't really work in modern times, is you're then when you find out why it's happening, I think you're meant to have some sympathy to why it's happening as well. But it's, it's crazy. Like, it's a it's bit like, like not really, mate. It's the worst. It's the worst plot. It doesn't age well. The plot doesn't no. age well. But also, you couldn't make that film where. Like, innocent times. You couldn't yeah. make that film where there's someone that's jumping out at people in the high street throwing <laughs> sticky stuff in women's hair. It's kind of like you go, hang on a minute, is that even... And I'm not even sure. It was so innocent and kind of like of another time that you don't even think that it could have possibly... They could have possibly even thought that it's semen. 
Do you know what I mean? It's not even a metaphor. Right, do you know what? What's weird is I've seen that film, and I've seen it a lot of times, and I've also seen it... Last time I saw it was maybe two years ago, and still I never made that connection until you've just said it. It's the first thing you think of. She's walking down the street in the dark, yeah, I get it. I and get someone, it. and a man jumps out, attacks her, and puts something sticky in her hair, and then he runs off, and then they go around trying to find him. And it's kind of like you go, it's glue, by the way. It's the, he puts glue in her hair. Yeah. It takes ages to wash it, bloody ages to wash it out. What I think it's really funny as well. Is this the American GI helps her wash her hair for like ten minutes, and then about half an hour later, he says, "What colour's your hair?" And it's kind of like. Well, I know it's black and white film, but it's not black and white the way... You're not seeing in black and white, are you? And you've just washed her hair for ten minutes, so you must know what colour her hair is. It's, um, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, so, it's so... It's beautiful, and when you kind of, like, yeah, understand... They all kind of get their things, at their, their rewards or their... Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, your man, the glue man, doesn't get a reward. He's denied his reward. No, but he kind of he gets sort of like a um, a moral pardon because you realise he's doing it for the greater good. Yes, unless so basically, that, um, oh, I've got glue in your hair, and he's like, yeah, glue. <laughs> basically, <laughs> it's um, it is it is a it is a it is a Canterbury tale, mm. but um. But it's such a specific one that you go, well, you could have picked anything for this. You could have picked absolutely anything. And you've gone with a two-hour movie about a woman with glue in her hair. It's not like time... It's not a timeless... It's not a timeless story because you literally couldn't tell that story now and for it to be as beautiful and as innocent as it is. It's really weird. It's really weird. I love it. I love it. And I find it really moving as well. When he plays, uh, when he plays the organ in the church. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, it's great the way it all sort of like folds in, and you go, oh right, they all have kind of like um, they all get to Canterbury, and they all kind of like um, get what they've been searching for, what's missing from their life, and yeah, it's beautiful, but it's sort of like this tacked on half hour where you really feel like it could end after any shot, and it doesn't. It goes on for half an hour, and you go, ha ha. Okay, cool. Right. right. What, what I like about it, because a lot of those British movies of that era, you often kind of import kind of like an American star, to, to, so it, it appeals to an American audience. So you can also yeah. say, that, but the guy they've got to be this American is this kind of, oh boy, where? <laughs> well, this... I'm at the wrong station. He's this skinny... Hey, when it says an American GI, you think yeah, it's going to be like this sexy kind of GI that's got... No, it's this skinny guy with a bad haircut that's like the most sort of corny, homegrown kind of uh, uh, American guy from like the mid the Midwest. And he t- Is he from Oregon? And But the dialogue's really funny. The characters are really funny. Um, it's just... It's, it's beautiful. And my link to that is um, I went to see uh, the life and death of Colonel Blimp at the the BFI a couple of years ago and that was introduced by Martin Scorsese Um, so I saw Martin Scorsese introduce the Powell and Pressburger film and this week I also watched Taxi Driver because I watched The Joker the other week Uh or Joker the other week so now I'm sort of like watching Taxi Driver and I'm going to watch King of Comedy again Um, uh, and Taxi Driver is uh, I watched a lot of um, interviews with Paul Paul right. Schrader. Um, yeah, I keep calling him Paul Schaefer. Paul, Shade, Paul Schrader talking about how he 
wrote Taxi Driver, and I find that really interesting because um, because what's interesting about Martin Scorsese is he's brought up Catholic, he's very moral, but he leaves you to make those moral uh, um, judgments, you know? Yes. He's not, you know, you can watch Goodfellas and you can think, God, these guys are great. But what you realise upon repeat view, I've never thought that. I find it terrifying. But why is it terrifying? Because these guys are sort of they're, uh, at the top of their game. Everybody, you know, they're, they're, they're making loads of money. You know, it's kind of like um, uh, they're showing it like the American dream gone wrong. But it's kind of like there's no re repercussions until right at the end. And you're going kind of like, if they didn't get any repercussions, that would be a great way to live, right? No. Of course not, because these guys are living in fear that they're going to be killed at any minute. And that's up to you to kind of make those moral... You know, he's showing it, but he's not telling you that. And so you can kind of look at Martin Scorsese films and kind of feel like they're not particularly moral films, but they are really. And when you look at Taxi Driver, he's sort of making a statement. He's saying, that he's talking about loneliness, and this is what happens when people get lonely. They get bad ideas in their head and they go off and they do silly things. And then the whole thing is about the fact that he's going to uh, do a presidential candidate assassination, and then he doesn't do it because, you know, he, he bottles it and he runs away at the last minute. And so he does the next best thing, which he kills a bunch of pimps. And it's kind of like, um, if he'd have done his original choice, he'd have been a national enemy, you know? He'd have, he'd have, been, he'd have been the bad guy. But he doesn't get to do his first choice, so he, get, he does his second choice, which is kills a bunch of pimps, and he becomes a... Spoiler alert. Um, and he becomes a hero, you know? And it's about kind of like luck and that one decision he's still a psychopath but it's just about what crime he committed that leads to you know uh, the, the, the his conclusion kind of like if he'd have done his original goal he would have been a villain but because he did the other thing he becomes a hero and then you're there going well morally he's still in the wrong it's they're, they're complicated films i've just tried to sum up a four-hour chat about Taxi Driver in three minutes. Now, you've got five minutes to talk about the 12 films that oh. you've seen. <laughs> the shoe's on the other foot this oh. week, Nathaniel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Paul Schrader, you said, wrote Taxi Driver. Paul Schaefer is the guy from the David Letterman show, isn't he? The band leader. Right, yeah. And he, he, wrote, he wrote the song, It's Raining Men. That's a Did good he? Fact. Yeah, that's a good fact about Paul Schaefer from uh, David Letterman, David Letterman's band leader. Here's, here's all the films I watched this week. If there's any stand out to you, shout out, because I can't really talk about all of them. I saw a TV movie, The Black Stuff, which spawned Boys from the Black Stuff. I saw Enola Holmes on Netflix. I saw The Boys in the Band on Netflix. I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street, 2010. Rubbish. I saw Lovers Rock, TV movie, Steve McQueen, part of Small Axe, 2020. I saw Skyfire. More on that later. I saw L.A. Confidential. I saw the Mischief D.B. Cooper documentary. Rubbish. I saw The Satanic Rites of Dracula. Amazing. Great. I saw Vault of Horror, 1973. I saw Hook, 1991. And I saw Tales from the Crypt, 1972. Well, what happens in Tales from the Crypt? Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror are both kind of anthology horror movies, British anthology horror movies. That's the British on one. The Crypt comics. What's the, um, what's the American one then called? 
There's the Tales from the Crypt TV series. Right, which is the one with the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, same, same, same thing. And there's Tales from the Dark Side. Mm. Um, and which I think is like, it's a later thing. I think in the States it's more like... Tells the unexpected, isn't it? I think. I think, I, I think it was. I think it was a George A. Romero sort of pilot, wasn't it? Mm. And then there was Body Bags, which was the John Carpenter pilot. Yes, very similar. Um, I think Body Bags is great for these anthology. You get basically three films in one that are all linked by uh, some sort of crypt keeper type thing. Tales from the Dark Side. There's the kid that is going to be eaten alive by a witch, and. He has to tell her three stories to stop her from killing him. Um, and then you get these three stories, which are weird stories that a kid would never have told, right? <laughs> In a fairy tale context. And then you get um, Body Bags, which is John Carpenter is a more is a is a sort of a zombified morgue attendant who uh, opens up these drawers of these dead bodies and tells the story of how they all died. I uh, think that's a great device though. A body bags is brilliant, and I think that that could have been a really good TV series if it had got picked up. Um, and that's got people like Mark Hamill and is it Stacey Keach is in it. Um, that's a really good film. Uh, and then um, uh, Tales from the Crypt. I've never. What was meant to be Tales from the Crypt? Um, oh, in the TV was... series, it's like a puppet. Cryptkeeper. But they made these films, so because uh, it's Robert Zemeckis uh, produced the TV series, Death Becomes Her was meant to be one, uh, oh, and right then that, that became a standalone film. There was another film that was meant to be a Tales from the Crypt. There's, there's the one that's um, the one that they made. Didn't they? they made two, I think. They made Demon Knight and Bordello of Blood. Yeah, yeah. Demon Knight was quite good, and Bordello of Blood was absolutely. One shit. of them is. You're right. One of them is um... Billy Zane and William Sadler. Yeah, there's one I think there was going to be a Tales from the Crypt. Or no, I think actually Bordello of Blood was... Tales from the Crypt. There was a third one that turned out to be something else. Oh, fuck. I think you're right. And also, but I think... But it's a huge film. It's a huge film that ended up being like a standalone film. But it was meant to be... I think Bordello of Blood actually was meant to be its own film and then got co-opted into Tales of the Crypt. Right. Well, Death Becomes Her is meant to be one of those. Anyway, um, uh, you've wasted a week there, Nathaniel. Um, what was what's the one? Just to say about the Freddy Krueger uh, Nightmare on Elm Street remake, you said that you saw it. Mm-hmm. And they kind of do a thing where they're going to say, because in this one they make um, Freddy Krueger in the original series was a child killer. Mm-hmm. And in the remake they make him a paedophile. Mm-hmm. But there is, a, there is a moment where it looks like Freddy Krueger was wrongly convicted of paedophilia and then all of the parents come along and burn him to death. Mm-hmm. And then that is why he's got his revenge. And you go, well, that sort of makes sense. And that's also sort of like making a, a statement about sort of society as well. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that he was a paedophile. <laughs> and then you go, well, this is just horrible, right? Yeah. It's just literally you've gone for the most horrible kind of... Uh, they're trying to be edgy. They're being edgelords. It could all be about mob justice. And actually what's happening is there's a sort of sins of the father repaid on the kids. Yeah. And in actual fact, if it had been about mob justice, the remake, it would have had something new to say and it would have had sort of a point of existing. And it would have it would have tied in more with all the kind of paedophile scares that you had 
you know, 10, 15 years ago and all that kind of stuff would have made a lot more sense to do that, would have made it a bit different from the originals. It would have been it would have been valid, and if they'd have dealt with it in kind of like a mature, intelligent way, you could have made something genuinely sort of like uh, mythological and scary, and um, uh, not satirical, but kind of like making a making a statement about you know like a statement about society. But what they ended up doing was having their cake and eating it, and then just like going, no, right? Well, we're in the two thousands now, so instead of being just a child killer, we can say what we really want to say. And he was a kiddie fiddler, yeah. And it's kind of like it's just gratuitous and horrible, and um, yeah, it's better, better, better left forgotten. Very much so. Should we do some fan mail? Uh, yeah, let's do some fan mail. Let's do some fan mail. Are, are you ready? Are you ready, Brian? Oh, yeah, okay, I'll just get me an old larynx warmed up. Here we go. Hello. I enjoy Nick on Werewolf on Twitch. Does his love of werewolf movies help out? What are your favorite Xmas horror movies, Krampus, Black Christmas, etc.? Have you asked John Carpenter to be on your show yet? Surely it has to happen soon. All the best, Frankie. Well, it has to happen soon, because uh, he's so old. <laughs> um, we, yeah, obviously... It's an open invitation to John Carpenter. In fact, if he turned up and we had a guest on, we'd kick that guest off and we would, <laughs> we would uh, replace him with John Carpenter. At a moment's notice. Um, I do love... Uh, I like playing Werewolf on Twitch, uh, Werewolf Live. Um, check it out. Uh, my love of Werewolf movies does not really help out because um, nobody else seems to follow the law, so I just go along with it. But... Um, but thanks for thinking that... I mean, that's why I do it. That's why I enjoy it so much. But, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really play into it that much when you're playing that game. It's every man for himself. Christmas horror movies. Um, there is actually an episode of Tales from the uh, Crypt that's set at horror. That was, I think it was the pilot that was directed by Robert Zemeckis. All Through the House. It's called. Yeah. Uh, which isn't a film. It's like a feature length. It's an hour-long... Uh, pilot for the Tales from the Crypt series. But the that's first kind of... story in the Tales from the Crypt story I watched this week as well. Which in the in the 70s version. In the 70s version, they remade it, didn't they, for the TV series? Yes, that's right. Um, uh, Christmas horror films, I guess Gremlins is there, but I don't really love Gremlins. I like so... rare exports, and I, I really like Black Christmas, actually. I think that's great. I think it's really creepy. Oh, what's the one where um, it's a guy dressed up as Santa Claus going around killing people? Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. I quite like that. Um, Silent Night, Deadly Night. That was banned, wasn't it? Because they advertised it as a Santa movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's Santa with an axe going around slaughtering people and all these kids complained and people wrote in and said, you can't do that, you can't do that with Santa. So it's like, of course you can. My favourite Christmas film would have to be Santa Claus the Movie starring Dudley Moore and John Lithgow. Said it. Dear Nick and Nat, I'm currently, abro- I'm currently abroad in Spain, and I can't help noticing that Spanish TV is really cheesy, especially the ads. Have you ever watched TV abroad? What is the weirdest ad you've watched abroad? No, I've never watched TV abroad. Have you ever watched I, TV I, abroad? Yeah, I did some gigs in, in Denmark, in <laughs> and when we got to the hotel, I turned on the TV to see what was on on the telly, and it was all like, it was daytime at the time. We got there quite early in the morning, and it was like British... Uh, it was it was things like Antiques Road Trip and uh, the Hairy Bikers on different channels. So it's like British TV, but in Copenhagen with no subtitles. And I thought that's weird. And there was about three channels of that. And when I went on to Channel Four, it was just hardcore pornography. And that's what was on there. 
That's what's on their telly at about ten in the morning. And I went, it's a different world. However, however did you cope? Uh, See, Nick and Nat, I've recently watched The Queen's Gambit. Have you watched it? I find it so boring. I don't understand why everyone likes it. I think that Netflix series are getting more and more disappointing. What do you think? Thanks, Charlie. I don't think... I haven't seen it. I don't think Netflix series are getting more and more disappointing. I think there's more and more Netflix series, and it's more and more difficult to... um, make a commitment to any of them because there's so much choice out there. I know that I've tried to watch a couple of Netflix series recently not that I'm like big into Netflix series but I've tried to watch a couple of Netflix series recently and I've sort of like um, if I don't like the first half hour of the first episode I'm sort of out and then I'm trying to find another one I prefer watching films which are self-contained stories within an hour and a half to three hours. I so yeah, I, I saw some of uh, The Queen's Gambit I thought she was brilliant in it. Um, I've sort of stopped watching it, I think. It's not... I I think, in a way, Netflix has become, like, the one-stop shop for people's kind of watching entertainment needs. And I think Netflix does a very specific type of TV show. And I think what you need to do is expand your viewing and go outside of that and experiment a bit more. That's what I'd say. Cool. Well, let's play a song. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foobar Radio. Uh, and we're back. Mode. We are back. Uh, we're back in the studio. We're not in the studio. We are in... Uh, I'm in my living room and Nat's in his washroom. And uh, we are live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded on a Wednesday. And we're joined now by uh, Hollywood royalty uh, s- director Simon West and actor Jason Isaacs. Uh, uh, yeah, unbelievable that you're both on our show. Thank you so much for coming to be here. Pleasure. That unbelievable, just sitting in our front rooms. Uh, I don't know about Simon, but I'm getting out of having to cook dinner by talking to you. Please keep it going. I might get out of the washing up. I'm getting um, out of the school run, actually. So, uh, so you're, in, you're in Oxfordshire at the moment, aren't you, Simon? I am, yes. And where are you, Jason? I'm a lot closer to Cricklewood than Hollywood, i tell you that. <laughs> I'm in London. Right, OK. Oh, yeah, so am I. Um, oh, I'll see you afterwards. Uh, so you're, uh, you've, you've just... Um, is, is this right in saying that uh, you've just made China's biggest uh, budget, dis- first big-budget disaster movie, Skyfire. Yes, we believe so. Although in China it's called a rescue movie. Um, oh, is it? It's That's a very positive spin. It's a slightly more positive spin on it. <laughs> yeah, we, we like to uh, call it a disaster movie, but they prefer the, the rescue aspect of it. So. Well, 90, 95% of the cast die in it. So really? that's not true. It's that's very not... much not true. Although uh, you know, don't blow it, Jason. Don't blow it. Don't don't give any spoilers away. <laughs> no. Well, I will say this: it's a film in which uh, I have, uh, being led by the science, of course, as is the buzz phrase, <laughs> built a holiday resort inside an active volcano. What could possibly go wrong? Yes. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> Alarm bells do ring as soon as the film starts. Really. Um, so, how did the fil- how did how did the film actually come about? Well, I was I was at the Cannes Film Festival, like you are, and um, you're constantly, you know, people coming up with you with scripts under their arms, and like the taxi driver from the hotel has a script, the you know the the, the hotel lobby receptionist has a script, and and somebody came up with me a, with a script, and um, but 
and uh, said, I've got this, you know, volcano movie. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sort of put it in my hand. And I had like an hour or so to kill before um, doing some interviews. So I, I had nothing to read. There was nothing in English around me to read. So I started reading it and I went, actually, you know, this is kind of uh, quite exciting. And um, so uh, I checked into who it was who'd given it to me. And it actually was a legitimate um, Hollywood producer. And, um, and so I actually called him up and said, you know, this, is, this has potential. Um, it's, uh, you know, give me a big canvas to paint on. And I like, you know, big canvases. And uh, so, you know, your mind starts working out how to do the action sequences. And you sort of made it in your head before anyone said that they've got the money to do it or, you know, we're going ahead. So um, I think it took like another year or a year and a half before um, the money was actually gathered together to do it. And then um, we say, well, actually, a lot of, uh, you know, the films are trying to appeal to Chinese audiences. And, and I said, yeah, you know, I've been approached like that a lot where, you know, you put one Chinese character in and you do a little bit of a Chinese plot and they ship it off to China and, hope they like it. And of course they hate it because they can spot it a mile off. You know, it's just, you know, a Hollywood film putting a token bit of China in it. Um, so this one was constructed in a completely different way where it was, um, although it was an international uh, crew, it was like 17 nationalities making it. And we shot it in Malaysia. It was um, uh, shot with a very strong Chinese element to it. So a, a large part of the cast are Chinese, apart from Jason, obviously, who, uh, we all know about him. Um, and uh, it was shot in two languages. So because the cast was bilingual, uh, most of the scenes I actually shot once in Chinese and then once in English and uh, had two completely different edits. And, um, you know, obviously the action and the, uh, you know, um, volcano and things like that are pretty international. But um, the dialogue was actually done twice. So it's it's quite a different experiment. And... It seemed to come off because it opened number one in China. So the Chinese liked it. So now we're just going to see if the, the Western version works over here because it could be sort of a new model of, uh, of how to make films for the whole world. You don't just dub them or subtitle them or um, do you know, arbitrary changes. You actually physically make two different films, but with all the same resources. Well, me and Nat watched it this week. It's really, really enjoyable. Um, my favourite bit is the metro sequence where they're throwing people from one metro to the <laughs> other. Um, uh, how did you get involved in it, Jason? Uh, you know, it's a, an amazingly intricate story. Simon called me. That's all it took. Actually, we met about 400 years ago when I auditioned for Simon making Con Air. And uh, I'd never forgotten it because... Uh, I was on camera there. They were filming the people auditioning, and I was meant to have a gun. And the camera assistant went, well, here, why don't you use this? And reached behind him and pulled out a real gun and put it in my hand. And I absolutely bricked it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then a few years ago, Simon called about a different film that didn't end up happening and had offered me a part that I couldn't do. And I was thrilled to find out the film never got made because it's very upsetting when they do go ahead. And then he called again and said, look, I'm making this giant Chinese action movie it's a volcano it explodes there's a whole you know it's a, as big a canvas as you're ever going to see and i went i'm in and uh and you know it was it was exactly as he promised me it was a fantastic adventure on and off camera uh we went to these are you know there's no one better than him to helm this kind of huge roller coaster ride but also it was eye-opening off camera as well the whole culture of how how, how chinese people are they're not the same as us but speaking a different language it's a different culture so the stories Whereas an enormous part of it is the action that Simon does so well that, you know, like the sequence you're talking about. Uh, but the, the also 
the way the characters uh, react to each other and the, you know, the importance that Chinese culture places on family relations, for instance. So at the heart of this, which in a Western film it might be in Titanic, it would be Jack and Rose, is a father and daughter because that's at the heart of Chinese culture. So there's something very interesting, apart from the kind of adrenaline ride of it all, in watching uh, the emotional priorities of a Chinese film as well. I thought... Anyway, I just... I said, sorry, the short motion was, I said yes because it was Simon and I went there and... Actually, it was, you know, the whole experience was very, very unusual for an actor because I love the whole village. You know, you go, it takes a village. I like to plug into everything socially, but I was on the set and I couldn't understand the word almost everybody was saying, certainly my, my fellow actors. And so it was Simon and I and the director of photography and a couple of other people. It felt like, uh, you know, I tuned them out at some point. It felt like being deaf because, because I couldn't. Uh, I wasn't, you know, attuned to what everyone was talking about. It was a very unusual uh, experience making it, which is probably mirrored by the character as well. Do you think it helped then that you were both English? Does that does that have a different kind of bond that you'd get even from like a, an international cast? You have a much more localized reference points. It felt yeah, well, to me, yeah, different. Simon interacted with everybody, but to yeah. me, uh, there were three or four people I was speaking to, and mostly Simon. For him, he was speaking to hundreds of people all the time. Yeah, but you do you do connect with, you know, your fellow. Uh, you know, you have points of reference that nobody else knew. You know, TV programs and, you yeah. know, it's just touchstones that only you, uh, you know, know about because you've grown up in the same culture. So it's it's very comforting when they're in in the jungle surrounded by poisonous snakes and 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 people not speaking your language to to you know bond with someone that actually understands the stupid little jokes you grew up with. Or so yeah. that is, it is comforting. So you did uh, all right. So you didn't actually film on an island, right? Uh, no, you know, you're not the first person yeah. to ask that. I don't know, Simon, if you've had that. I've had quite a few uh, journalists ask whether I was scared filming so close to a volcano. Well, no, no, no hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't misrepresent me. I, I, I get that you didn't film next to an exploding volcano. That's it's fine. Right? It's not a documentary. We were it no. up. No, but you filmed sort of like on the mainland and then sort of CGI'd an island around you, yeah? Yeah, I mean, we were on the coast um, and we did actually go to... There was Malaysia, which is obviously a massive uh, land mass, um, but it's not a little tiny island. And then we actually shot some some sequences on the island of Langkawi, um, which is a little island. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's the trick of filmmaking. You... you uh, you make everything look like it, you know, because you never see the whole island at once apart from the, you know, wide shot. And, um, and as I, you know, and as I said, even though I think some, some of it is CGI, I always try and do as much in camera as possible. So, you know, you do want the, the actors to feel the heat and the explosions. And um, so even though the mountain may be CGI behind them, everything around them, they, they feel like they're in a flipping Yes. eruption, you know, they're breathing I can, the ash. You know. I can attest to that. The flames were extremely real, uh, and they were. I'm sure they were giving me, you know, it was terribly safe because they would be shouting at me in Mandarin, watch out behind you, on your left, on your right. On the other hand, I can't speak English. On the other hand, I couldn't understand a word they were saying. So for me, slightly more a voyage of discovery than other people. Uh, it was always safe, but it was no question the hairs on your arms were burnt, and there was, there was, there was this weird ash, which is made of some kind of uh, floating, burning paper combined with smoke that was coming out of every orifice for weeks in the hotel room. <laughs> but, you know, it, it felt dangerous, but it was safe. That's the trick of making an action movie. So when you're looking at me panicking, 
I'm panicking, I'm scared and I'm hot, but I didn't actually burn. Sure. Your character uh, in, another, in, in a more Hollywood film uh, would be kind of like your archetypical British um, villain. But the way that your character comes across in this film is he's not necessarily... He's not played to be, like, the big bad villain. He's actually quite uh, relatable. Uh, it's, do you think that's uh, because of, like, the Chinese market? I think that's bollocks. Can I say bollocks on your radio show? Is that allowed? I'm yeah, you can say bollocks. You can say whatever you like. I think it's bollocks because, God bless him, the late, great Siddiqui Attenborough built a park out of reconstituted dinosaur DNA, and it ate everybody, and nobody ever called him the villain. I'm building a resort change <laughs> the future of tourism. I'm backed by science. I'm backed by the world's leading volcanologist. There's a young girl who says, oh, I don't think it's going to work. You can't shut down progress because of people like that, for God's <laughs> sake. Now, it turns out, it, you know, it turns out it would have been a very short and very unsuccessful film had we filmed the version where the volcano doesn't blow up. So they made the choice that the volcano blows up, but 99 times out of 100, it just would have been Elon Musk going to the moon. It would be a whole new area of tourism. Hmm. What we mean, though, I think it's almost your character's actually quite sympathetic, right? You don't think you're not the big villain of it. You're, you're probably the closest thing the film has to a villain, but you are sympathetic. I'm asking you this. If you could afford it, would you go on Richard Branson's space shuttle? Would yes. you go on Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos's trip to Mars? Should they arrange it? Yes, Would they be a villain if it went wrong? That's Thanks for assuming that I couldn't afford this as well. Um, <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> uh, no, but that's exactly what I mean. In a, in a, in a, like if, um, in, when you look at a film like um, uh, San Andreas, where you have uh, Rhys Grufford in it, and he's this huge moustache-twirling British villain, and you know right from the beginning that he's going to get it bad. And it's kind of like, in terms of British actors in... Uh, disaster movies and action movies, you know that they're a shit as soon as they turn up. When it's your character, you go, right, he's the shit. And then the way the film kind of, like, unfurls is that you realise that, oh, no, he's not a shit at all. And it's kind of like, do you think that that was sort of maybe softened for the Chinese market? Or was no, that... I, I, well, we had this discussion, Jason and I, and we were talking about the character at the beginning, and we were saying that he's a dreamer. And this is where, you know, Jason said, well, to me, he's a dreamer, and he's not a bad guy. He's just, you know, he's got these big ideas that, you know, in this case doesn't come off. But And that's why, you know, Jason said, he, you know, I really like the idea of playing him like Elon Musk. And, you know, hence the accent. And uh, I made a mistake, of course. I said, can I play him South African like Elon Musk? And then I found out after his daughter's shooting that Elon Musk no longer has a South African accent. He, but the principle stands. Yeah, exactly. But it, it, it's better that he doesn't, because there would be a direct impersonation. But you were... You know, going into his history, which I think was better. But the, he's to me, the movie, when I had to think about it to set up, to me, the bad guy is the volcano. The volcano is the thing that's trying to kill everybody, and it's a monster movie, and I even gave them the volcano, you know, um, its own sound, so that, you know, it has animal sounds, and every time it appears, it does something different. You think it's going to just throw lava at you. Well, the next time, you know, the ground opens up, and the next time, it's a pyroclastic 400-mile-an-hour gaseous burning mass so it to me the volcano was the bad guy and um jack harris was, was uh... i'm going to pull back slightly further and say it's uh, the bad i don't know if it's the bad person it's not personified it's us trying to beat nature 
it's mankind going, we can beat nature, we can top all that stuff, yeah. we, can, we can control anything and everything, and witness the fact that we're all speaking on Zoom now is a testimony to the fact that we can't. Well, that's one of the lines in the film, isn't it? You say, even though it's a volcano, you say, this is a man-made disaster. Yeah. You know, because... Yeah, and that's why, you know, there are, there are clues in it where it, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a natural, uh, you know, occurrence, the eruption. It's because of the drilling that was going on to make the, right. uh, to make the resort, you know, even more, you know, um, comfortable with hot water and spas and things like that. And um, so, you know, that's, that's where the human element came in and then, and the bravado and the hubris of like, we I did try the other day, actually, I can't remember, I was on some interview, I was trying to just for fun, push it as a film with a powerful ecological message. And they went, shut up. <laughs> Fair enough. It is a volcano disaster movie, but you know you can see you if you if you feel so inclined. It's, it's a uh, rescue it movie. It's a rescue. Yeah, sorry, so sorry. It's a rescue movie. It's a rescue movie. Rescue movie. Right. It does do that, right? And that's what Simon, you're used to making these big budget movies. Do you think this kind of film, a big budget disaster movie, would be the kind of film you'd make in Hollywood now? It feels like you would have got it. Ten, five, ten years ago, but it almost feels like now everything's sort of superheroes, isn't it? And even what you'd think of as the big budget action movie feels like um, that might even not be the kind of thing that gets made so often now. And do you think you could have made this movie in Hollywood today? Um, no, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I certainly would have. Uh, it would have been a different movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it definitely trying to have a character. Pushing it, even though you know you want to put on the roller coaster ride, it's definitely. And goodness knows, I, I, you know, that's part of my main part of my job is to turn, you know, a small story into a roller coaster ride. You know, and that tends to happen on all all the films I've done, and this one was no exception. It was the original script is they drove up the mountain in a Land Rover, and then they got chased down the mountain in a Land Rover, and I, and right. a, that's never going to do, you know, that's not going to... So that's why I invented the whole monorail sequence, because it's, it's one of those sort of cool <laughs> toy, you know, kids' toys things that, you know, it's like uh, Disneyland, uh, all those sort of uh, retro, you know, rocket ship monorail things. No, don't do yourself down. The, the backwards cheap thing on the lava river is fantastic as well. And the, the, the missiles raining down from the sky, like you say, no. it's got many ways to kill you. Yeah, but that wouldn't be enough. That would not be enough. Just, just that. You know, you've got to have, you know. And over the years, you you learn how to construct these sequences. You've got to have, you know, two or three things going on at the same time to keep the interest. And it's and it's fun right. for the audience. And it's fun for me to think those things up. And and also, as you know, when you're doing the research, you suddenly become a little bit of an expert on volcanoes for six months and so you start pulling out all the things they do all the cool things that because there's lots of different types so some of them you know throw out poisonous gas some of them throw out fast lava you know slow lava and you start putting all those into your sequences and um you know there's the same with with the uh the mechanics of it how you know you you think up okay what what would you if, if you were like jack harris what would you build at the top there and i looked at all those chinese glass walkways they're obsessed with they love those glass walkways they're like terrifying that go over cliffs and and they smash them with hammers and to prove how strong they are and then i saw you know because you spend six months on youtube or the internet researching all this stuff and and then i saw that pod the glass pod that goes up and down in brighton so you start right. 
I went on that. I went on that three weeks ago. Well, that's Not what's three one, weeks ago, but a month ago. Well, that's what the one in the movie's based on. You know, go, oh, you know that. You know, we have glass pods. The Chinese have, the, you know, these glass walkways, and so you design and invent this whole thing up there. And I, what could go wrong when you put those things up there? Well, the first thing is, you know, obviously, when you're being pelted with, you know, flying lava, the glass is going to break. You're going to fall through the holes. The tower's going to crash, and you just have fun like working out all the things you've invented and built, how then you can destroy them in an interesting way. Sure. Interesting you say that. Me and Nick uh, come from, like, a stand-up background, and when we're constructing shows, or when I do, I try and think of, like, it's almost like set pieces, like big jokes that are scattered throughout, like, an hour set or something. And it's interesting to think of it in exactly the same way, and actually I've realised I'm more applying an action movie aesthetic to that by thinking you need X number of set pieces Timed across, and you think in that movie, yeah, the monorail. All stories, all stories, all stand-up routines, all movies, all stories have a narrative structure, and they have that you plant seeds, and they pay off later. Michael Powell used to call them bombs, didn't he? You plant bombs, and they go off later, and you want the big one to go off at the end, and you know, it's just a there's a there's a craft to it that that is to appear artless. You know, mm-hmm. that's the whole point of it. No, very much so, and it feels like. Um, what I liked about this film is it gets going very quickly. So it kind of, it's almost, it starts, the action starts happening during the setup. When you're sort of learning yeah. about the park, it's, you almost imagine it's all going to start going wrong about 20 minutes to 30 minutes. And actually, it almost starts going wrong immediately. Mm-hmm. Kind of then yeah. There's no fucking around. No. The dinosaurs are getting out of the cage. Short attention span, definitely. <laughs> uh, my uh, my favourite bit is the thonk sound effect of the guy from one monorail to the other as he hits a post. That's my favourite. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that is um, yeah. well, that gets the best reaction, that stuff, you know, so... Um, one of my favourite films that I've seen, uh, I, I think I saw it just before lockdown and then I saw it during lockdown, uh, is Con Air. And um, obviously... That um, is, I think it was an 18 certificate when it came out. In I think I had to, I think I had to sneak into the cinema. With, my parents took me, um, and um, and obviously the the gore and the um, and the violence in that is is kind of extreme. So when you're making a film like this for um, a Chinese audience, what are some of the differences that you're? What are some of the changes that you're making in um, your storytelling? compared to, like, a, an American action movie and, uh, a, and something aimed to a Chinese audience. It's funny you should say that, because I think now Con Air is so tame in terms of violence or gore or language or anything like that. I mean, it, it, it's it's like a PG film now. It's and not. I, yeah, I, can't, I mean, I can't... If you watch, a, <laughs> you, watch a, you know, a, a modern action film, it is so violent and the language is so strong... That I I think Con Air is that's why I think it it um, it can be shown anytime to anyone now. It's because it's it's so tame compared to um, I mean at the time it was yeah compared to a Netflix series even compared to many sure. many things on television. I mean, on sure. I mean what part of Con Air is incredibly gory? The bit when uh, you move Danny Trejo at the end and his arms are still hanging yeah, there. But you don't even see like his eyes. Oh no! But your imagination, you know, yeah, well, your imagination. That's a whole different thing. Yeah, but they psycho's gory because of that. You see blood running down a plug. That's good filmmaking. Yeah, but now you see people cut in half, you know, with swords and Regularly, yeah. heads flying off, and you see, you know, the, the, <laughs> the whole effect. It is so realistic. And um, 
I think it's it's very uh, tame, Conor, and I think that's why, you know, it's uh, you can still watch it, you know, with your with your grandma because you are personally responsible for inflicting upon the world something between I think seven and eight hundred Nicolas Cage action movies. Because he had not done one before. It was part of his his, uh, late 90s uh, resurrection was that he did The Rock, Con Air, and then Face Off. Right. And and so you were like... I don't think I'm solely responsible, but... um, No, I'm giving you the blame. You're the only one on the Zoom with me. No, no, to share the blame. And, you know, in The Rock, he was, you know, a nerd... Mm. Who had yeah. to, you know, a science nerd who had to come with in Connor? He's a full blown. Yeah, yeah, he certainly is. Yeah, he's in the. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to. We did part of the research thing. We went to a lot of uh, prisons in the states, which was the scariest thing. And we went to Folsom Maximum Security Prison. Wow! And walking out on the yard with Nick Cage, and there's two thousand, you know, hardened criminals there who are, you know, they're all, you know, it's not. It's, it's false and maximum security. It's for the guys that are too bad to go into the normal prisons. And you have to sign a waiver before you go in saying that, you know, if you get hold, held hostage, you won't sue the state if they kill you or they cut your fingers off. Or, and, and you get this whole instruction, like, if, if a fight breaks out, because there's no, there's no guns, the guards don't have guns down on the ground because they just get grabbed off them. So the only guards with guns are up in the towers. So you walk out in the in the yard and they say, if a fight breaks out, hit the ground because everybody knows all the other inmates will hit the ground and it'll only the only people left standing will be people in the fight and that's who they'll shoot at. So you have all this going through your head when you're walking in of like, okay, if I get held hostage, there's nothing I can do about it. If there's a fight, I've got to... And, um, you know, and everyone's... You're walking out in the cage and everyone's getting interested and they're coming around and they're gathering. And, of course, everyone's in their separate gangs you know everyone has everyone is affiliated to a different gang so these you know they're coming in these great groups and they start circling around and it all starts off very friendly and then they want you know an autograph then they want a a pie in the next movie and then they want to touch uh, nick and then and then a fight breaks out and we run for it (laughs) but uh yeah i mean and we interviewed lifers and we walked into the you know all the cells and everything i mean it's it was Pretty hardcore. So, I thought you were going to say that they said if a fight breaks out, just make sure you win. Yeah, there was no chance of winning. That <laughs> <laughs> no. was, it, that was um, your first like feature-length movie. Was that? Yeah. Was it intimidating when you sort of when you have that cast, or is it just something you kind of you walk in and it's like I'm in charge. This is I know what I'm doing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's both. It's I'd done a lot of commercials, so which the most um, you know, you, you, seven day shoot is a long, long commercial. So it's more of a stamina thing. So I had all a lot of technical um, expertise. So I'd been directing commercials and documentaries and things like since I was twenty two, and so I had like fourteen years professional shooting. I thought I knew everything. You know, and um, and you walk on the set, you go, yeah, I can, I can do this, and you realise, you know, after the end of the first day, that you, you know, you're completely overwhelmed, and like, how am I? I remember turning to the DP and go, like, after the first day, and going, like, how am I going to do another hundred of these days? Because um, you are dealing with five hundred person crew, massive, you know, experienced um, actors, and you've got to, you know, keep the machine rolling. So it was, it was overwhelming, but there's also, an, you know, a, 
you don't know what you don't know, I suppose, and, and naivety. And, um, and uh, you know, half the people there are supportive and the half are very unsupportive because, they, you know, they, you go, why should you be doing this? And quite rightly so, you know, after a while, you sort of, you see their point of view, you know, like, why should I be doing this? This is ridiculous, you know. And so what's the answer? The answer, how am I getting through 100 days is one day at a time. Well, it's just, I, you know, you just put your head down. And after, I remember hitting day 30 and go and hitting a wall and go, I can't go on, I can't go on. Because it's, you know, you're shooting long hours, you're working seven days a week, and you're trying to deal with a thousand personalities and keep and try and make a good film on the side as well as running the factory. And, um, and then after a few more days, you get into the swing. It's like a marathon runner, I suppose. And then, and then it becomes your daily job. You clock in at, you know, seven in the morning, you clock off at nine at night and you're going to come back the next day. And it, and you don't realize that it will end one day because it's after a while it becomes, that's your daily job. And I remember when I was looking, obviously particularly shattered that, line producer coming over to me and saying you do realize one day this film will be finished don't you and i went <laughs> oh yeah it will be well i don't have to do this for the rest of my life this is you know you've got like a morale booster um but uh yeah so it was difficult um but incredibly satisfying after people always say and even the writer came up to me in, in the beginning of the film and said are you excited are you excited i said no i'm not excited i'm terrified excited <laughs> i'm excited when i go somewhere you know, to a spa or something, to have a relax, but you don't get excited. <laughs> I'm not, I'm terrified. Um, which part did you audition for, Jason? Oh, probably the part that was a very, very close toss-up between me and John Malkovich, or something like that, I can't uh, remember. Something I would have had no hope of uh, getting. I think I was in there because my then friend, Colleen, was, uh, I'm still my friend, but uh, she was then uh, Simon's assistant. I think I sneaked in under the radar I think and was Jason was too, too young and handsome to play the band. Oh, God bless you. Yeah. Was, I mean, I did, I did, you know, in fairness, I did offer Jason like three or four films afterwards, which he all t- he turned down. So, you know, it was, because, you know. I have a single criteria. Will I make another twat of myself? It's never who's making it, what's the money. They think I'm good enough to do this. I know I'll make a twat of myself and never work again. That is the first hurdle. Yeah, possible, you would have been in Armageddon probably only a year or so later, so you sort of would have had that experience of that big kind of Jerry Brookheim. Oh, yeah. I, really, on, that, on the same trip, I w- went to audition for Armageddon. I remember the agent saying to me, uh, I have to go meet uh, Michael Bay for the space film. And I went, what, what, what script? They said, there's no script. And I went, well, obviously there's a script. How are they going to make a film without a script? There must be. Well, you can't see it. And I said, well, I'm not going. Because I was young and arrogant and didn't care. And my career was in England. I lived in England. It was just a holiday for me. And they said, well, you can't, they, you're not at a level where you get to see the script. And I said, well, I'm not at a level where I'm going to the meeting. And they uh, must have been like, you know, 12 or 23 or something. And they, um, <laughs> so I, spoke, I went to this meeting. They said, well, they said you can go an hour early. And I went to a room, which was glass on three sides. And some assistant came in put a script down on my lap, which is printed on dark maroon paper. I could barely make out a font. And he gave it to me and said, you have one hour. Please don't read out loud. <laughs> As if I... So anyway, I read the thing, and then oh, six months, nine months later, I'm, a, I'm in Belfast. I've been there for a week rehearsing with the IRA, about to make a, a, a Northern Irish comedy. It's Sunday night. Well, it's three in the morning on Monday morning. I got a phone call, and uh, they go, hey, Jason. Hi, I have Mary and Tom and Bert and George and Fred from ICM on the phone. And I went, it's three in the morning. And they went, yeah, I know. They're calling from, and then we have uh, Marcy from Disney and like five other people. I don't understand what's happening. Anyway, this guy comes on the phone. Not, I didn't have an agent in America. He'd, he'd babysat me when I'd been there six months earlier. He said, wonderful news. 
Michael Bay wants you to be in Armageddon. I went, who's that? <laughs> remember when you were here in March? And I said, I don't remember. The space movie? I said, yeah, I don't. Okay. He goes, and they want you to play Tom. And I said, who's Tom? <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. We didn't read the script. Do you remember? I said, I don't remember. They said, well, it's an astronaut. It's one of the astronauts, and you get to go and train at NASA, and you're going to go on the Vomit Comet, and you know, you're one of the guys. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I said, well, that's great. So there's only one thing. And I said, what's that? And they went, it starts on Tuesday. And I went, what, what, what Tuesday? They went, this Tuesday. I went, but I'm shooting in four hours. I'm on the set. It's the first day's shooting tomorrow. They went, you let us take care of that. And I said, oh, no, you can't take care of it. That's just, <laughs> I'm a professional actor. This is the job. They went, honey, Jason, listen to me. This is a Bruce Willis project. And I said, I, this, this is a David Thewlis project. It doesn't matter who's in it. I'm a professional actor on a set, and I'm shooting in the morning. And then there was a strange silence. And I went, Mary, George, Joe, Ringo, Burr, anyone, anyone, this is my phone working. They went, we'll call you back. I said, don't call me back. I mean, anyway, so the part I ended up playing in Armageddon was the kind of dusty bin consolation part they offered me. And, uh, and I was there the whole time. And whenever the actors would do, there is a hierarchy always on all films. But whenever those actors would swan by and give me the slight snake eye from the side, I'd be thinking, I was offered your fucking part. <laughs> they couldn't, oh. do couldn't do it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So when when you did when you did uh, the first Harry Potter, it was a very small part that sort of like blossomed into an ongoing part of the series. Did you know when you accepted that originally that it was going to become such a huge franchise? Because it was there was only like a couple of books that came out originally. By the time the I first don't know came where out. King, all the things that are wrong with what you just said. I'm so sorry. Uh, what only because? <laughs> There were four books out. They were already the biggest books in the world. Uh, and I was offered a part in the second mm. film. And the second film, I had a very big part. It diminished as the things went on. And each time I thought, should I go back to do the next? I mean, there's really not much to do. And then David Heyman, who's the nicest man in the world who produced it, went, look, we want you back, but it's not a very big part. We can't pay you any more money. And you did make a bed for yourself by coming up with that wig. We could put it on someone else. So actually, my biggest part was in the first one that I did. And no, I didn't think of it as the biggest film in the world uh, or as a franchise because my experience is going to the set and telling a story with people in costume and I did many jobs in between. Other people can use a word like franchise because they make lunchboxes or open theme parks. But for me, sure. there are a lovely bunch of people I went to make a film with and then every two years I'd go back and play a slightly smaller part. Uh, but I did it because who doesn't want to hear Julie Walters tell stories about a pig farm, you know, next mm. to the tea urn. Um, I remember on the last film, being there, we were doing the big open battle sequence. It was two weeks we were watching Rafe, who I've known, you know, with the same person, I've known forever, do this huge monologue. Two weeks, I'm sitting there going, and Helen McCrory, who played my wife, and our sister, went, I don't know how you fucking put up with this for 10 years. I cannot stand it. And I started to feel sorry for myself. I looked around, and I thought, do you know what? I've got three lines in the next two weeks. That's all I got. And I looked over there, and I saw Emma Thompson. She got an Oscar. Maggie Smith got an Oscar. Jim Broadbent's got an Oscar. <laughs> Someone else got an Oscar. And, I, and Julie Walters got an Oscar. And I thought, they haven't got any lights. At least I've got three lights. <laughs> so some <laughs> consolation. But uh, the great joy of Harry Potter, unlike almost everything in life, I loved making Skyfire. I loved being on the set. I loved hanging out with Simon. It's enormously good fun. The pleasure <laughs> in Harry Potter is the opposite of everything I've ever done. It all came afterwards. It's all come in the effect it's had on people, the comfort mm -hmm. it gives to people, the cultures built up around it. People who come up and tell you sincerely, and I believe them, that it saved their life, you know, or it's sh shone a light on them when they were in darkness. 
And because uh, it was very slow to make and a bit boring, and, and my part got smaller. That's the truth of it. I guess the thing with that is anything that's sort of like a children's movie is those people that watch that, that audience, will also be employing you for uh, in the future. <laughs> that kind of to them, it's that kind of it's a huge part of of their childhood as well. Yeah, well, certainly with Potter, people come up and they want to talk to you not because you're in something they like, but because that ten years of their life was at you know uh, such a vital and important or difficult time, and they really just want to be connected with that period of their life again. Mm-hmm. You might, you're also connected with like uh, James Bond, weren't you? You're always, it was always very rumoured that you were going to be a new Bond, and was that ever? Was you must that... be believing things you read in the Daily Mail, and you need therapy for that. It was never true. I was never on any list anywhere. They knew they were going to go to Dan because Dan is, was, maybe he still is, the sexiest man I'd come across. We played Lovers for a, a year on stage. I, had, I was in Angels in America. It was a magnificent play. I had to have sex and make out with Stephen Delane, who's a wonderful actor, and Dan Craig. It's quite tough for Stephen and I. We were just a bit awkward with each other. Dan, Dan radiates sex appeal. Anyone who's ever known him knows that true. He was the perfect choice for Bond. He was an early choice for Bond. And any time someone would point out to me that some august journal like the Daily Mail or Daily Star had put me on a list somewhere, uh, I would double over laughing. It was never true. Okay. That's... So, Simon, when you, so when you made Con Air, you were working with uh, Nicolas Cage, John Malkovich, Steve Buscemi, Ving Rames. You were working with sort of like some of the biggest names in indie cinema. And then when you went on to make The Expendables 2, you were kind of working with. Uh, Sylvester Sloan, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dolph Lundgren, Jean-Claude Van Damme. What are, wow. what, what are some of the differences that you have to... How, how do you manage directing... Um, More toilet um, breaks, I'm thinking. On <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, well, you know, the thing, the thing about Con Air was it was a weird film because it was written as a small indie story but it's like scott rosenberg the writer was i'm a big fan of you know did two little films like things to do in denver when you're dead and uh, beautiful girls very small character pieces and that's why i chose conair because of the characters in it, it wasn't because it didn't really have any action or anything and i personally wasn't an action fan before i did conair or make the films i watched were very different and i as i said i'd done quite a few years in the states doing commercials and because the only commercials there with actors and dialogue in were comedy, and I quite, you know, I quite like comedy. Um, I ended up doing endless comedy commercials, so I was doing twenty-five comedy commercials a year for three or four years, and, and eventually, you know, they they started going on to the Super Bowl, which is like you know the zenith of commercials in America, and they put, you know, they pay three million dollars for thirty seconds to go on, and everyone, you know, knows your commercials, and and I was like the comedy guy in America. And um, and I did one commercial for the U.S. Navy, which was I completely ripped off from Tony Scott Top Gun, you know. <laughs> and uh, we went onto an aircraft carrier and we landed. And we did all the macho stuff, and we were lying on the deck with the planes going over us and getting blasted off. And it was you know it was a really full on action commercial. And that's the one that Jerry Bruckheimer saw on the <laughs> on the Super Bowl. And, and I don't think he knew I was really a comedy director. And and so he called me in for a meeting because you know, he was very keen on commercials directors at that time becoming film directors. And, and that's the whole reason I did commercials, because I was copying Tony, you know, Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, Adrian Lyne, Hugh Hudson, all those guys that were English commercials directors. And has your, because your contemporaries at the company you're at, 
but were all of whom went on to be very big uh, film directors. Had yeah. they started already, or were you the first? Started? No, uh, no, they just about started because it was, you know, when I, I was at Propaganda, and there, when I was there doing these commercials, it was uh, Michael Bay, uh, David Fincher, uh, Dominic Senna, uh, Anton Fuqua, and me. Oh, and uh, Spike uh, and Spike Jones, and um, Propaganda had all these. Um, Directors were busting to do feature films, and but we were like the cash cows making commercials for them. And so they had a film division, but they they wanted to make small indie, you know, non-commercial films really. And so everybody kind of went off to the studio. We're getting offers from all the studios to make films. Um, and you know, Michael Bay went off and did Bad Boys with uh, with Jerry. And then uh, that's when, and, I, and then he just did The Rock. And then Jerry would say, "Okay, who else can I poach from propaganda?" So yeah. he me up and said, "Oh yeah, he did that fantastic, you know, Navy action commercial." I didn't tell him about the the other hundred comedy ones, and um, and he pulled these scripts off the wall. He said, "Read those three scripts over the weekend and tell me which one you want to make." And th- two of them were like um, typical. Navy SEALs in the jungle saved the orphans, and they were, like, really terrible. And then the third one was Con Air, which was, as I said, it was kind of a small character piece. It all set on an aeroplane with, with nowhere else. That's all that happened. It was, wow. It was just between, you know, the guys. But they all had the cool names, Diamond Dog and Sally Can't Dance and Cyrus the Virus. And the dialogue was great and the uh, characters were great, but nothing else happened in it. And so I came back on money and... And I'd also been offered a comedy from Sony, a romantic comedy, and a kind of espionage film from a European company. And over the weekend, I had to decide which of three offers I was going to take. And so I decided to take Con Air because it wasn't a comedy. And I was so sick of doing comedy. And, um, and, then, and then I went in. I said, oh, it's Jerry, okay, I want, I'll do Con Air. He said, okay, well, you've got to turn it into a summer blockbuster now. So... <laughs> That's when I sat down for like six months and just went through it and just invented everything that happened in it. And so basically any any dialogue or character comes out, that's Scott, and then any, uh, Scott Rosenberg, and then anything that happens is me. And so that, so you get this that's weird... That's a very happy marriage. Yeah, you get this weird mixture of cool indie dialogue and character with this out, over the top, over the blown operatic fantasy and, so, also, and also I couldn't it, even stop doing the comedy so because I couldn't really turn it off so I ended up making a comedy anyway but with just a lot it's of It's one of my favourite comedies it's one of my favourite comedies I think I mean you wouldn't get a, you wouldn't get a budget that big to make a comedy no, that was but I think it's I think it's wonderful and I don't think anybody spotted it I don't I'm, I don't know if Jerry spotted it or Certainly, the studio didn't spot it because they, they, we, I went into, remember going to Blockbuster when there was Blockbusters and seeing the <laughs> film there. And, and it was all marketed as a white knuckle ride and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, adrenaline pumping. And no one mentioned it's actually quite funny in place and it's a bit weird. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like, it wasn't like quirky, weird well, comedy. It's funny enough, it's got, you know, there is a, without it being uh, out and out comedy comedy, it's not, you know, airplane or naked gun. It's got its tongue firmly in its cheek. You're watching outsized characters in an outsized story. 
not enormously unlike Skyfire, you know, different in a way. But, the, you know, there is a level of relish in it. It's not naturalism. It's, it's no. both naturalistic, but well, there's a, me, you know, there's a, a kind fantasy. of cocked eyebrow. Yeah, it's a kind of a fantasy. And I did everything uh, deliberately, changed everything to be more uh, an alternate reality because, you know, the real Connor, and it does exist, they do transport 250,000 prisoners around America on these airplanes, but they're just, you know, Boeing 737s. They're just boring, normal planes. They are, you know, they are often they're, you know, uh, handcuffed to the seat, but that's about it. And so I, I redesigned. Nobody wants to watch that film. No, and, and it's like, <laughs> and also there'd just been a film about turbulence had just come out, right. and they had built. They spent a fortune, and they built this sort of ten million dollar rig that flipped the plane upside down. And funny enough, we could we went along to see it because they wanted to sell it to us afterwards. <laughs> and, um, and we couldn't afford it, so we ended up putting our aeroplane on a on um, uh, truck airbags, you know, the air suspension sure. trucks, and you just press a button and they, you know, they go up and down with air, and it just shook it a bit. But um, but I deliberately designed, you know, the the plane to look like a fifties, you know, prison bus. It wasn't like a seven three seven. Everything was metal and horrible and hard. And then I mean, even down to things like the police cars. I deliberately chose police cars not from the period we were shooting from the 90s, which were these horrible rounded crown Vicks. I actually right. chose police cars from 10 or 15 years earlier because I loved the ones that were on Kojak or Columbo, you know, the old <laughs> square ones. So everything was like unreal. It was an alternate time period and an alternate world that was, you know, not necessarily supposed to be realistic. And then sometimes that seemed to piss people off that it wasn't super realistic. But, um, I like fantasy films. Nobody wants real. Nobody goes to the film, unless you're making a Ken Loach film. We go there to see heightened versions of reality, yeah. stylized versions of reality, curated, and, you know. And I think that's right. But, but there was executive decision, there was turbulence, there was Passenger 57, there was Die Hard 2, and then Con Air comes along and you go, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know... It's better. It's Die Hard on a plane. And then when you see it, it's just like, oh, my God. And it's, this is the one that stuck with me like my entire adult life. I love it. I think it's one of the, yeah, one of my favourites. But, but, but how, how did uh, the making of something like that apply to the making of something like Expendables 2? Well, um, it's definitely a different, uh, different uh, ensemble of thespians, I suppose, because, you know, I, I, I w was literally given a blank cheque by Jerry Brockheimer to go and um, get any indie, indie actor I wanted and pay them four right. times the, more than they'd ever had before. So no one said no because they couldn't believe how much they're getting paid. And so th that's why I ended up with that, you know, an indie cast. Then the difference with Expendables 2 is that that, that troupe kind of existed of, as I said, 80s and 90s um, action. Superstars. Yeah. yeah. And they had already had a, di a completely different aura. So it was a it's kind of a, in some ways similar, like it's, you know, wisecracking, but it's, it's a different vibe because people grew up with those guys. And funny enough, a lot of them I hadn't grown up with because I wasn't an action movie fan until I started making action movies. And I still don't really watch them because it's like Busman's Holiday, you know? It's like I watch anything but because all I can see is the mechanics and the scaffolding and the meetings and, the, you know, it's like <laughs> just homework. So I never watch action films. And so 
you know, I, I, I knew that everyone had a reverence for a lot of these guys, but I'd never seen a Chuck Norris film. And um, <laughs> yeah. you must have heard a Chuck Norris joke. It's a whole genre of comedy. I, had, I, I, knew, I knew Chuck Norris jokes, but I had no yeah. idea. I'd never seen the film. And when I met Chuck Norris, you know, it was it was a great honor to meet the person that joke. And and the joke, the Chuck Norris joke in the film, he actually came up with. You know, <laughs> so it, he, he um, loves it too. But it, you know, it's it's a different thing, and I and I, it was one of those. Things where you go, shall I do it? Shall I not do it? And you, know, you go, it'll never happen again. They'll never all be in one spot at the same time. And also, I saw the, you know, so I had to, you know, do my due diligence and watch the first one. And I go, you know, you, it starts off, I think, with um, Arnie, Bruce, and uh, Sly, but they're in a little dialogue scene in a church, you know, just, mm. you know, a couple of wisecracks, and then they leave. And you go, oh, you know. So I was like, we've got to get them. In the same frame with big guns really? blowing stuff up, and, because they've never been in the same frame, you know. And, and you know, you're shooting widescreen, so you can fit three big action stars with big muscles in a nice wide shot. Five normal and, people, but three no, of them. No, yeah, like five, yeah, exactly. <laughs> five Jason Isaacs. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. J- Jason is very buff, so I take. Uh, <laughs> But, so, uh, now, without you're not obviously going to give too many uh, private things away here, and I'm sure you'll tell me in private. But I'm presuming in that film, in Expendables Two, like with any film with those ensembles of big stars, one has to be care- very careful about rationing out the good lines, the good moments, so that it's as even a spread, a portion to their where they live on the totem pole. That's a whole other layer of filmmaking <laughs> that doesn't well, normally yeah. exist, right? I mean, it's like but the way it goes is, you know. Um... Whoever's on set gets the best line because the others can't hear that they're being given the best line. But you know, <laughs> there's lots of tricks. Like, um, you know, Bruce will never say yippee ki It's like contractually he won't say yippee ki So, right. So I gave that line to um, Arnold. So Arnold can say it. And, um, you know, and I think I swapped another line. I think, uh, oh, yeah. And so I gave Bruce. Bruce gets the line, I'll be back. You know, so because none of them want to say their their um, sure, sure. their catchphrase lines, but you can give it to other people in the film, so mm-hmm. people get to hear it. And, and you know, and and, it, and in shooting the dialogue scenes, it was you know there was one at the scene at the end, and I was uh, it was all three of them again, and I and I was so insisting that I shot it all in one shot. I was saying like, I want to shoot you all. So and it was a sort of a funny funny wisecracky thing. And the timing had to be right because it was comedy. And, you know, Bruce was saying, well, you know, just, you know, you're going to just shoot us in singles, you know, close-ups. And I said, no, no, I want you all three together. So you've got to get the timing right because I can't fix it in editing because you're all in the frame at the same time. And um, and, it, and it wasn't getting, it wasn't getting, can you go fast? And I think I, I did get shouted at a bit for... for um, taking too many takes to try and get the comedy timing right because I just can't turn off the comedy timing, you know. Hello, so, fair enough. And um, but <laughs> got it in the end. And I think, you know, that the fans want to see them all together mm-hmm. without a lot of cuts and without a lot of, you know, tricks in editing just so they can um, finally get them all together in the same frame before they all scatter. But, I mean, a lot of the problem with that film, making it, is the scheduling. You've got all those people and they had to have, like, a flow chart of when everybody was available, because you know this person's right. available for those four days, this person's available for two weeks. So you're rewriting the script to have people in scenes that you know 
are on the telephone because they can't be in the scene. And, you know, Jason couldn't make it one day, so he's in a truck getting some ammunition for some reason on the phone and listening, <laughs> listening into the battle. And, like, right. and but you turn that to your advantage, you know, and it's funny because he's listening to a battle on the phone, you know, going, how's it going, how's it going? You know, and he goes, oh, it's getting bad, it's getting bad. You know, Sly's going, oh, no, you know, it's, you know, it's going to, I think, you know, it's going to, the only thing that could be worse is if they got a tank. And he goes, well, they got a tank, you know. So you, you use those restrictions that they can't all be in the same place to your advantage. So Yeah, I, I think that's one of the problems with the first one. And then you kind of, like, in the second one, all of those problems sort of, like, get smoothed over. I think that that's, I mean, if that's what you added to it, that's that's very apparent. Yeah. Uh, my favourite bit is the uh, smart car sequence where right. Arnold Schwarzenegger says, my shoe is bigger than this car. That is the best bit. Yeah. We could, but we've come to the end. Jason Isaacs, I wanted to tell you that Event Horizon oh. still gives me nightmares. Uh, I'm so glad. That, that was its uh, very purpose. I want to tell you what I've been texted by the powers that be. Make sure that you mention that Skyfire is available now on DVD, Blu-ray and digital platforms. So this is me mentioning that. Skyfire uh, is event- now available. Yes, there you go. And now it's been doubled. You mentioned it as well. We've just got time to play a really quick game with you all, and uh, I'm going to leave it over to Nat to take over. This is the game. It's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person on my list is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinions. I'm already uh, just in paroxysms of guilt and shame. Okay, go on. That's why I was about to jump out of a plane on my birthday a few years ago, and I said, does anyone ever say no at this stage? It was tandem. The guy says, they do, but I don't give them a choice, and then he just jumps. (laughs) Beginning with Frank Sinatra. According yeah. to my own opinion, is Sammy Davis Jr. better or worse than Frank Sinatra? I don't know you well, but Sammy Davis was infinitely more talented in every area. Could dance and sing and play instruments. Clearly Sammy Davis, it should be. Correct. Excellent. David Bowie, better or worse than Sammy Davis Jr.? <laughs> worse, obviously. Better, better. Nice. I knew you'd say better, but not. That's the game, that's the game. Uh, Mick okay. Jagger, better or worse than David Bowie? Simon, take it. Worse. Worse. Le- Louis Armstrong, better or worse than Mick Jagger? Better. Better. <laughs> He's outraged. Dave Grohl, better or worse than Louis Armstrong? I don't know. Alexa wants to chip in. Alexa, shut up. Alexa, shut up. <laughs> I, I, I can't. Dave Grohl, better or worse than Louis Armstrong? That's right. Worse. 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 You set, you're setting off Alexa and Hey Google. I've got a Google Home and Alexa in the same room. That's how powerful you are. How worse. upset they are. Dave Grohl, of course he's worse. Dave Grohl himself would say worse. Tom Jones, better or worse than Dave Grohl? Better. I'm going to say better. Correct. Paul McCartney, better or worse than Tom Jones? Simon. Better. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, better or worse than Paul McCartney? Worse. Worse. Come on. Jimi Hendrix, better or worse than Bruce Springsteen? Sorry. Better. Better, correct. Uh, Beyonce, better or worse than Jimi Hendrix? Well, I'd rather be stuck with Beyonce anyway, yeah. I'm going to say better on every level. <laughs> So this isn't even our opinion. This is your opinion. So you've got to put, your, you've got to put yourself in the, his mind. Oh, I yeah. don't care about him. I'm putting myself in my in the mind. That I'm playing the odds. Beyonce's actually a big fan of this show. I have you imagine. Well, 
That's a good one. Simon Weston, Jason Isaac, she scored an eight, oh. which means that you're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manfred, Joseph Lady with ten, David Badil, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine, but you are as good as Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Medical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Griffiths Jones, Chris Stark, Stuart Griffin with eight, and you're better than James King, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, yeah. Johnny Vegas with seven, and Gary Dillon with six. It's an absolutely average, I'm afraid, guys. Congratulations, congratulations with your film. Uh, it's out available now. It's called Skyfire. Uh, thank you for coming on to our show uh, and best of luck with everything in the future. Thank you very much. Best of luck with your lighting. Best luck thank with your you lighting next time. That's why I thought. You too, Jason. You good, good luck with your lighting too. Uh, thanks very thanks much. much, everyone. Take care Bye, of yourselves everyone. and everyone else. Goodbye. Bye, Simon. Bye, Bye. Bye. Bye.